here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. see an ultimate version of Doctor Strange who just hosts a bad TV show, like fucking Vincent Van Gogh or um, um, Peter Vincent. To be fair, we only saw Doctor Strange's son as the ultimate version, so the ultimate Doctor Strange senior could have been that. True. Yeah, could you imagine Cumberbatch playing Vincent Price in a later film? I want to see Cumberbatch attempt to do that voice. Uh, with Arthur Darville as Peter Cushing. <laughs> now that makes sense. And David Tennant as aging actor David Tennant. <laughs> I was in things once. No, you weren't. I love the idea of the league of fucking sci-fi actors who couldn't get work for some reason, and just David Tennant plays himself in modern times. <laughs> an old man makeup. Just smearing himself in purple makeup. You can bring me back, right? I did it once. So anyway, Doctor Strange. Yes. Jonathan Bangball. Ah, Benjamin Bratz. The perfect use of Benjamin Bratt. Cripple him immediately. <laughs> and then have him play basketball. The thing that he shares in common with his Catwoman character. <laughs> There's a through line. I think is that the like just the only way you can film Benjamin Bratt is just... Meet him at the court where he plays hoop daily. <laughs> that dude is married to the chick who played Katana in the Mortal Kombat films. Benjamin Bratt still just... It disturbs me that he works. <laughs> hey, he, he was the cleaner. Even look at his performance in one scene in Doctor Strange. It's like he's the less interesting Lou Diamond Phillips. <laughs> Like, he's got that same style of acting. I've always wanted him and Lou Diamond Phillips to be in a movie as father and son. Or, like, <laughs> brothers or something. No, they're brothers. Their dad is Jimmy Smith. <laughs> he's disappointed in them. I, I think about it. Fucking Benjamin Bratt is the evil Jimmy Smith, isn't he? Oh, my. You know who else could be in that movie? Freaking Oscar Isaac. <laughs> as the youngest. Now, he's the lost son who's come to find them because of some kind of mystical journey, because this is a sci-fi film now. Is this so a Oscar sequel to Doctor Strange? <laughs> yes. So Oscar Isaac, like, has to put in a masterful, like, he has to underact masterfully, and he does. Exactly. Oscar Isaac has to go in there and match the performances of Lou Diamond Phillips and Benjamin Bratt. Along with Jimmy Smith, who just doesn't have time for any of this. And there's an after credit scene of <laughs> Baron Mordo raising up his hand <laughs> sinisterly and saying, too many Latino-American character actors. <laughs> and then La Bamba plays in its entirety. <laughs> hey, welcome to Box Office Pulp, everybody. I'm Mike. I'm Andy. And I am James. And we're here to talk about Splash. Oh, boy. Wasn't Tom Hanks great in that movie? I'm just saying, Channing Tatum has a lot to live up to. Oh yeah, that joke actually, using Splash actually has two connotations now. Should go with Mannequin. I've never actually seen <laughs> Splash, by the way. I'm just imagining a gender-swipped Mannequin. 
Oh, God. With Benjamin Bratt. <laughs> Question. I'm alive now. Can Benjamin Bratt play both characters? He can play the mannequin. Wait, is that the movie we were talking about? Benjamin Bratt <laughs> brings Lou Diamond films to life. <laughs> it's a mannequin of himself. Can I say, Benjamin Bratt talking about expanding his mind. Dead seriously. Is the funniest thing Benjamin Bratt Dressed ever like that, with his basketball. As if he's not in his late 60s. And his giant beard. <laughs> I just love how Marvel's thing is just filling every single bit part with a recognizable actor. And eventually they zeroed in on Benjamin Bratt for this character. I like how we've had discussions of getting mad at Marvel for wasting really good actors on one-scene roles. Notice how we haven't brought that up for Benjamin Bratt. What we're talking about, in case anyone was unclear, because all we've been talking about is Benjamin Bratt and Splash so far, <laughs> is Marvel's Doctor Strange, which was released a month ago. But we're talking about now because, holy crap, we just came back from the Dark Dimension, and that was a really good movie. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm really in love with the idea that we vacation in the Dark Dimension. With we comic book around. Dormammu. We just hang around on one of those interconnected spheres. <laughs> Whoa. So those just look like Dormammu's testicles, right? Yeah. Oh, that tickles strange. Oh, oh, oh. oh you're making the lines appear on my face. <laughs> Dormammu, I'm here to check your prostate. <laughs> he finds out he has testicular uh, dimension cancer and... <laughs> The only way to stop it is fusing his balls with Mads Milkinson. I always knew this time would come. So out of Mads Mikkelsen's face, you start to see just flappy skin developing where his eyes used to be. Man, I love David Cronenberg's Doctor Strange. <laughs> <laughs> the eye of Agamotto appears on Strange's chest. No! Long live the new magic. His hands are just giant tumors that never stop growing. That's why he has to go to the Tibet. The ancient one has to stop them from becoming 80s monsters. Teach me. He's talking to a giant writhing vagina. <laughs> so yeah, Doctor Strange, the actual movie which actually exists as released by Marvel. We're actually here to discuss that and not... David Cronenberg's fleshy Doctor Strange and or Splash or we can talk about Splash or that movie that honestly the three of us are gonna pitch to Hollywood like right after we get off of here or what else is Jimmy Smith's doing burning alive on the flaming embers of Alderaan so Doctor Strange <laughs> it's Cody's not even here can we explain the no fuck it Cody's not here no well look Cody was banished from the podcast. Temporarily, he'll be back, but still, he was banished from the podcast because he opened the sacred text of iTunes, and he pulled out the one page that would make Box Office Pulp the most popular podcast on the internet. He is currently battling Tilda Swinton for podcast supremacy somewhere over New York. I don't know where. I mean, you joke, but I don't know how feed works. I wasn't joking. I actually do fully believe all of that. So, let's go down the line. MB, because you're here. <laughs> That's my only qualification. <laughs> what did you think of Doctor Strange? 
out of all the Marvel characters that exist, Doctor Strange has, for a very long time, been the one I've been the least interested in. Just because I've never really been able to kind of connect with the character on any sort of level. Just based on the fact that I'm not really into magic. Until I read Doctor Strange The Oath by Brian K. Vaughn, because that was what was being referenced in production to this movie. And I really like that story. But I still never really had that much of a connection to Strange as a character, because I read the comics and I was just like, I, I want to get into this character, but I'm not really finding anything beyond the Oath to get me in there. All of that said, this movie actually managed to get me on Strange's side for probably the first time. Like, this movie embodies everything that I like about Doctor Strange, condenses it into a movie, and then just says, okay, just follow this version. Because this version just has none of the chuffa. None of the chuffa that follows Doctor Strange around in the comic books, where he's this convoluted, like, he knows all of these spells and can do anything and, and has all these like weird words and references to things that you're not meant to understand because you're a mere mortal. His eye patch. Like Doctor Strange in this movie, because he's in an origin movie, allows to be a character that you follow this stuff along with. And even in the strange origin stories from the comics, is it's mostly just told in flashbacks and nonlinear flashbacks. So I was really surprised and, like, really appreciative of the fact that this is a flat-out origin story, but also an origin story for the mystical side of Marvel for the first time. I mean, Thor wasn't really that great of an intro, considering they tried to pass it off as aliens. That wasn't magic. They just had laser beams. So with the mystical side of this being at forefront and Doctor Strange being kind of considered, you know, a focal character for this larger sect and this group that has to ward off uh, mystical enemies to the world where the Avengers can't intervene. Like, everything about the setup in this movie is just fantastic. And I went away from this just thinking, like, wow, that I may have actually liked that more than Guardians of the Galaxy. Because, like, Guardians is great, and I love it, but it's an ensemble movie. This is a solo-focused movie that has all the fun, I think, of Guardians, with all of the weirdness of Guardians as well. And it has its own tone, too. Well, you hit on something that's been the greatest millstone around the neck of the character since his inception. And that's the fact that Doctor Strange, as he's been presented for most of the character's history, is a character that works infinitely better as a guest star than he ever really has as a solo character. Yeah, he's always been the character who's shown up to help out Spider-Man or Daredevil or the Fantastic Four or something. Like, he's always the go-to consultant of the Marvel Universe, but not really really a guy that you key in on for his own personal journey. Yeah, and that's... I mean, that comes from the fact that the character... that the the, The key conceit of this character is... He knows pretty much everything and is basically a god. Which is unavoidable because of the nature of the character, and I understand that, but even though he's called the Sorcerer Supreme, he's a little bit too supreme. That's one of the uh, great things about the recent Aaron run, is just how Aaron was able to take him just a few notches back and kind of dial him back to Earth and kind of reframe him as a living, breathing dude who just throws on a hoodie, and walks around New York sometimes. And this movie manages to do that spectacularly. That was something I was always 
unsure about in the production of this movie with it being an origin story, because I was never that convinced that Doctor Strange's origin, A, would be interesting at all, and B, if that character would still work watching him become Doctor Strange when the destination is all you really care about. And thankfully, I was proven spectacularly wrong in that regard. It was like, not a, the origin as it's presented in the movie somehow manages to be really engaging by superhero origin standards and manages to complete, completely avoid the biggest red flag about Doctor Strange's origin in the comics, which is it's just Iron Man's origin, but with magic instead of science. And not only is it Iron Man's origin, it's also Batman's origin, because that was something that the writer actually, see Robert Cargill, actually mentioned in an interview, that he was so mad that Batman Begins ripped off Doctor Strange so heavily, because everything about that sequence in Batman Begins was just Doctor Strange with Rachel Gould. Very much so. And with Doctor Strange, you kind of get all the same beats. Like, he is a cruel, ri- arrogant, rich man with a mustache who uses his genius for gain until he's humbled by a horrible, crippling accident and then becomes a superhero for various reasons. And, and one of the one of the biggest problems with that is that Doctor Strange and Iron Man, beyond their origins even, have always been comparable because it's always been this kind of unsaid thing that in the Marvel Universe, like, way back when Tony would have, like, big parties and lavish, like, drinking competitions with other billionaires, Doctor Strange, as a like a neurosurgeon, would be on the other side of the room doing the exact same thing, and nobody would really put two and two together. But it was always just that weird thing that nobody put together, even though it's there. It's right there. It's the thing that's really... Like, even the current comic books still have the problem of, how do you discern the two? They're mustache buddies. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, I was, I'm surprised at how the movie was able to, like, as you said, cut out so much of the chuffa with Doctor Strange and his origin, because I was shocked that Doctor Strange is crippled, like, seven minutes into this movie. Oh, yeah, it doesn't waste any time, and that's what I loved about it, too, is that the Doctor portion of it is established just enough to where you understand, okay, he is a Doctor, and then they just take that away from him. It's like, oh, so we don't have to spend, like, 30 minutes or 40 minutes like we did with Tony Stark. Like, actually, I was rewatching the first Iron Man, and Iron Man puts on his first, like, Mark III armor an hour and 15 minutes into the movie. <laughs> Doctor Strange becomes Doctor Strange so much quicker, and by that point, that's when it becomes a movie about the magical arts and the supernatural and all the stuff that Marvel can never get into before then. And just things from Doctor Strange's origin, they were able to kind of iron out. The thing that's always been a bit odd with Doctor Strange's origin is the fact that he is a wicked, gifted neurosurgeon, which they've always kind of like danced around the comics. Like, well, just, he 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 used his neurosurgeon abilities for 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 gain. We're not going to talk about it, and they'll. The closest I've seen to really going into that is in the uh, very wonky J. Michael Strzinski attempted retelling of his origin in the 2000s, where they just change it to, uh, he was a neurosurgeon, and then he became a plastic surgeon, because that's where the money was. The, Which I always 
comic that you're referring to, by the way, is called Strange, which I also read for uh, preparation in terms of this movie. And yeah, you're not lying. It's it's wonky. It is one of the weirdest retellings of an origin story I've ever read. The first issue is really good. Don't read anything else. No. Mm -mm. But they were able to kind of make that work in this retelling. And to give Doctor Strange a very interesting uh, perspective that relates back to that, which is the idea that Doctor Strange's chief character flaw amongst all of the other ones is just a pathological fear of failure, which I never... Like, that never really occurred to me as something you could say about Doctor Strange. But, yeah, even in the comics, yeah, that's that's kind of there. It's, it's kind of an unsaid element rather than a thing that people bring out in, like, all the best string stories or anything. It's that's just it. kind of, people equate the ego thing more into his origin, which is why he gets mistaken with Tony Stark so much. That's just such a interesting idea, the idea that his big failing is that He's so gifted he could help anybody, but he only chooses to to help a select few because he's terrified of the day that he's not good enough. There's a a surprising uh, psychological depth to that that really took me by surprise. Yeah, and you've been you've been fairly silent on it so far, Mike. What did you think of Marvel's Doctor Strange? I haven't seen it. <laughs> could you imagine? You just invited us on for your own personal amusement. I mean, I, I am filling in for Cody, and Cody would do something like that. <laughs> Guys, was. tell me about Doctor Strange. <laughs> Save me my eight ninety five. This is an impromptu Tales from the Bup. Bup, 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 bup. I accidentally watched the seventies version. It was a horrible mistake. <laughs> that would be a Tales from the Bup. <laughs> Oh, I could do one. I watched it for preparation for this. I don't recommend doing that. Let's do it right now. No. A lot of walking into rooms. So I, uh, I, I really, really very much uh, like Doctor Strange, but I also found myself quite disappointed in it. Um, I actually ended up rewatching it earlier today uh, in preparation for this episode. I found much less problems the second time around than I did the first time watching it. Or maybe... Um, the problems I actually do have with the film became a bit more clear to me. I pretty much, I, I pretty much agree with everything you guys are saying. My issues with the film fall more into structure, which I find affects Strange's character arc himself. And that I feel like the movies had a lot of air removed from it that I think it kind of desperately needed. It's, it's too a short. short Marvel movie. Like that shocked me. Uh, rewatching it today without credits, it's only an hour and 48 minutes long. That is way too short. I mean, not that it needs to be like two and a half hours, but you know, a solid two without credits, I think is, uh, I think it's a pretty decent runtime. It's nowhere near on the level of Ant-Man or Age of Ultron as far as, you know, the infamous Marvel edits go, but by normal movie standards, it's, it's a bit sparser than it needs to be, I would say. Yeah. And, not to compare the, you know, released film versus things you see in trailers and whatnot, but, you know, just in trailers, you can see little bits that are in existing scenes in the movie. Like, I don't know if there's even any deleted scenes necessarily, but just little bits that give a little bit air to each scene. Like, I found the first act moved a little bit too quickly once he's out of the operating room. 
because I was just watching the runtime, and by about minute 47, he's pretty much in the New York Sanctum. An entire movie's worth of content happens in about 40 minutes, which is great, but I think misses out a lot of fun of Strange's origin and kind of it has to catapult the pace of the film over Strange's character arc that I think gets lost for a little while once he starts his training, where he's just kind of a funny dude learning mystical things, which is good. I like how they didn't overplay Strange's dickishness so much. Is yeah. As you said, it, it was about something else. I, I do have an issue with maybe a little bit too much comedy, but... I, I had the same problem. That's the only... Like, you had the pacing, the only real flaw I could see that kind of miffed me was the comedy is a little bit overdone. Yeah. But Not Marvel overdone, but a little bit more than it needed to a be. A little bit pulled back. Like, um, there's something that I think hurts um, when the mo- movie needed to get maybe a little bit more serious. And it was a very serious moment once the Ancient One dies. Spoilers. <laughs> and when he puts his cape on and ups his collar where it's the Doctor Strange collar, and then there's a moment of comedy. Yeah, that really annoyed me. Yeah, that... Definitely did not need to be there. Or even when it, there felt like there were scenes that didn't make sense in the context of the pacing or structure that were just there for comedy sequences that were inserted, like him stealing a book from Wong that just didn't quite jive when you look at uh, the sequences around it leaning up. It just feels like something's inserted in there for some reason. Strange trolling Wong is delightful, though, and I am glad that that's there. <laughs> oh, I love all the stuff with him and Wong. What's weird is that I'm I'm listening to you two talk about it, and I don't – that isn't – neither of those problems actually bothered me, but I do have a separate problem. That's what's weird is, like, I've seen a lot of people on online actually talk about the movie and talk about it in varying ways to where – Everyone pretty much agrees, like, they like the movie quite a bit, and it's a lot of fun, it's well-made, and, like, all this stuff, but there is that one thing, but it's always a different thing, like, depending on who goes to see it. It is interesting. Kind of a Rorschach test. Yeah. And for me, it isn't the comedy. I love the comedy in it. I actually thought it was, well, way better handled than a lot of other Marvel movies lately. I would say so. It has better comedy than a lot of Marvel movies. There's just a smidge too much of it. Well, this is comedy written by Dan Harmon, so it's going to be good. It's just you have moments where, like, Casilius gets put in the contraption and then does a moonwalk briefly, and then his voice is muffled. It just kind of takes the air out of the whole situation for... A little bit. See, I, I didn't get that impression, but one thing I did kind of hone in on is the biggest problem is that this movie wants to build so much to the Ancient One being the one who is hi- lying and hiding something that it undercuts everything with Caecilius. Because even though he's motivated by the fact that the Ancient One is hiding the secret, that she's using like channeling the power of the dark dimension to keep herself young and to keep herself the one sole protector of the earth realm. Like I did feel like that reveal came a little too late because by that moment, like it's like 50 minutes into the film and Caecilius has been doing all this sort of stuff and his motivations have yet to be made clear until that moment. And then like right after that, he has like one more scene. I want to see if you agree. Do you feel like Caecilius, Obviously, I'm not saying this like this is true. It's just this is the analogy I'm going for. But Caecilius was reshot into the movie. It, none of it, his it, scenes feel like they're from the movie. 
His opening scene does. His, his opening, opening scene does. His opening scene where, and also the fight that he has with the Ancient One that introduces us into the, like, the whole world and everything, which is really well done. Yeah. Um, but, like, every scene of him, like, in the church, every scene of him, like, every scene where he isn't interacting with a major character like Strange or the Ancient One is just something that's just there. It, well, it, kind of, it has the problem of, like, the villain is there to do his own thing off to the side, which we see way too often in superhero movies anyway. But this one feels particularly not relevant to the story because what Kaecilius is doing is you all like reality altering. It should immediately have a cause and ripple effect, but they constantly have to go around like, where's Kaecilius? What's he doing? Like, we can't find him. It's like, look where the, the inception stuff is. happening. <laughs> Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but until, like, Yuja 4 was actually cast, wasn't Mordo supposed to be the third act villain? Because there's, like, art of that and stuff. Is there? I've, I've never seen it. I've never... I don't think I, he was ever... I don't think he was ever meant to be the third act villain, but he was definitely meant to have a much different role than I think they wanted... they ended up going with. Uh, yeah, according According to Derrickson, like, it wasn't until he actually sat down with Ujifor and they talked about the character that he realized that he shouldn't have a heel turn until another movie. I think that was definitely the right choice. Yeah, Mordo is okay. one of the most fascinating characters my favorite in this. Because Mordo is essentially, he's a loyalist who has an immediate crisis of faith, and that's what leads into something that's going to lead into a sequel. But that's the best possible. It's It's like... Everything that was done wrong with Sinestro in the Green Lantern movie is done right with Mordo. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, Mordo is—it's one of the—it's kind of a, a cliche to say things like this, but I would just watch the Mordo movie. Same. Mordo is captivating, and that mm -hmm. performance is incredible. Oh, I mean, the fact that they got a level of actor that close after his Oscar win, and it didn't turn into a Mickey Rourke situation where he's just bitter and obviously not putting that much effort into the role. Baron Mordo just is pretty much there to be the, the one that strange is trying to be for most of the movie, but actually succeeds when he goes about it in his own way. Cause he shows a very strict, like, okay, this is the ancient ones te teachings. This is everything that we're supposed to do in a situation like this. And because Doctor Strange is like, that's stupid, let's do it this way, that's why he's the Sorcerer Supreme. That's why he's the clear choice, because he's the one that outthinks the Ancient One. He's the one that outthinks this outdated mentality of, I have to channel the Dark Dimension energies to protect the Earth and do things a certain way, and nobody will question me. Like, it's, it's very, it has a lot of parallels with religious fanaticism. Very much and so. It kind of, in the greater Marvel story, ties into themes we've seen, like, slowly building over these movies, especially this past year, of the idea of the way things have always be, been done, even if they worked, aren't necessarily what should be done. Anyways, we've definitely seen that in the past two Captain America films. Yeah. The notion that you sometimes have to get your hands dirty to do what's right is a very, very flawed point of view. Like, you see this very much with uh, one of the last conversations between Mordo and Strange, where Strange has to kill somebody and is deeply, deeply affected by that, which really surprised me, and just immediately decides, no, he's not going to kill people anymore. There has to be another way. 
But at the same time, there's also a parallel scene towards the end where Strange makes a call that is very extreme and something to where it risks everything and risks further things along the way that Mordo is extremely uncomfortable with and says, no, this is not a path I can follow you on. So it's a, it's a really cool, like, opposite side of the coin thing that they have because they both want the same thing, but they do not want to handle it in nearly the same way. And it's a, it's a lot more complicated than one is willing to kill and one isn't like yeah. you would see in like another superhero movie, which is like one is like, it's kind of in a weird way. And I'm not like trying to knock this at all, but it's kind of like the daredevil Punisher thing from the Netflix show where the only difference between them is one kills and one doesn't, and that's what makes them bitter enemies. Doctor Strange and Baron Mordo have different reasons to be enemies. They have different, like, they have complicated characterization flaws that make them incompatible as allies. It's a true ideological difference that I don't think we've ever really experienced in a comic book movie to that extreme before. It's not Captain America and Red Skull being like, I don't like you because of what you represent. I don't like you what you represent. Yeah, so like Mordo's entire motivation is just a respect for what he views as the natural order of things. And like in that order, in that natural order, sometimes you have to break people's necks to get what you want. Yeah. And Doctor Strange just going completely off script and out of the box on that is so fucking offensive to him, which I I just, as much as I feel like the third act needed a little bit more in the action department just before the Dormammu confrontation, my favorite thing about this movie is the fact that instead of ending in a slugfest, Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange is his way out of the situation. (laughs) Oh, the the actual freaking conversation that he and or confrontation that he and Dormammu have is one of the most inventive things I've ever seen in A, a Marvel movie, and B, a superhero movie. Maybe even C, a blockbuster. It's probably my favorite thing in the movie. Just Doctor Strange realizing he's in a superhero movie, looking around and going, no. And then just talking his way out of the final confrontation. And I love how that tied in directly with the idea of Strange being afraid of failure, and that what's, that's what makes him the horrible dick that he is. Like I said, it's the most strange thing in the world. He just, he's going, he wins by failing over and over again, and that's his sacrifice. Well, what I love, too, about that is that the build-up to that is so amazing, where, like James said, he looks around and he's like, this, this isn't, no, none of this. And... What he does instead of fighting is he flies into the air and goes through dimensions and confronts the big bad monster man and says, Dormammu, I've come to bargain. He literally breaks the fabric of time to swipe left from what is usually considered to be the traditional superhero movie ending. He escapes the cliché. Which is, you know, very similar to what Civil War did in its third act, where it set up the cliché and then completely um, circumvented those circumstances. And the end of Doctor Strange does the same. Wong, Mordo, and Strange are all side by side about to fight Gaselius and his zealots, and Strange just goes, no, there's there's a better idea. There's an actual thinking, clever idea, not just fighting people with magic things in our hands. 
And what's cool is that you actually get to see the exact result that gets him to that point because someone dies, he sees that and is like, wait a minute, I can just undo that. I can undo that and then take this even further because he has the Eye of Agamotto, which is used brilliantly, like in a way I didn't expect. I, I just love what a Doctor Strange thing that is because it never occurred to me at the time, but walking out of the movie, I was thinking, you know, I would have been so irritated if a Doctor Strange movie ultimately ended in a slugfest. Yeah. That would be the most un-Doctor Strange thing in the world. Steve Ditko would t- pull the paper bag off of his head <laughs> and pull a gun on the director. You'd have to leave his apartment, though. Oh, uh, yeah. Because Doctor Strange, he's he's a mystical traveler through different worlds and, a, you know, an adventurer, a, a gatekeeper. He's like he'll fight people because he's a comic book superhero, but he's not. You know, it's like whenever the Fantastic Four mischaracterizes superheroes who just fight villains like no, like Strange goes into other worlds. He goes in weird acid, acid trippy places and deals with forbidden knowledge that is leaked out. He, he does other things other than just fist fight people. Well, not only yeah, that, but the way he fist fights people is like stuff like runes and fancy words and spells that just completely upside a character. He doesn't throw a punch the way that other characters do. Yeah. And what separates and, Doctor Strange from all the other Marvel characters, that's that thing that's always been very integral to the core of the character, is that at the end of the day, Strange is a man of peace. He's a scholar. That's why you don't see him in the big slugfest with the Avengers, because he's going to look at that and say, no, I'm not going to go punch some people. I'm not going to destroy gonna, things. I'm going to sit here and read my book <laughs> with my tea. And not only that, but the movie does a brilliant thing by having Strange in the second act be presented with a situation where he has no choice but to fight, and he's really terrible at it. Like, he is really bad at fighting Cassilius and his minions. He only just barely escapes with his life. And that kind of feeds into the third act, because the third act is essentially him going, well, if I try to fight him on his terms, it's just not going to work out, because we've seen how this goes. I had to kill a man. Nobody can fight Mads. Like, he, like literally, Doctor Strange in the second act is saved by a living cape. <laughs> I love the cape of levitation. The cloak of levitation, the... The, the magic, magic carpet from Aladdin. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, <laughs> the magic carpet from Aladdin that just freaking becomes his own character and gives Strange the most amazing hero entrance I've ever seen, which is him <laughs> levitating up off the ground as his theme plays. Can we... Uh... Make use of the Eye of Agamotto for a second and turn the clock back just a little bit to the battle that prefaces <laughs> the uh, Dormammu confrontation, where Strange and Kaiselius battle in a Hong Kong that is being undestroyed. That was so inventive and incredible. I wasn't... I personally, I would have liked to see it like go on for maybe just like another minute. Just yeah. to make it a little more satisfying, because it was over a little bit sooner than I think it should have. But holy shit, when it was happening! Yeah, I I could not believe those visuals. Just so trippy and just something I've never seen before. Like I I would have liked because I, I was kind of fine with the earlier action scenes with Strange fighting. Like it was fine, but it was you know other than the stuff out in the streets, you know, it was 
when the Ancient One shows up. Like, just Strange versus the Zealot and stuff in the Sanctum were just kind of standard. And then time reversing, and <laughs> Strange and Kaecilia is fighting, and people getting trapped in things as time is reversed, and wow, that was cool. Not only that, but, I mean, that just leads into a larger thing about the movie, which is everyone talks about it, the visuals. The visuals in this movie, the first time Strange is taught to expand his mind, in quotes, <laughs> and just is the greatest scene through, in comic book history. Yeah, is thrown through time and space itself, thrown through the pocket dimensions that make up the universe and sees multiple versions of himself and has to fly through the air and you see all these vivid colors and it, Steve Yitko's head. Exactly. It's it's the thing that Derrickson prompted the most out of the movie, which is he wanted to capture the feel of a Steve Ditko drawing so much, and it did maximum Ditko. God, the moment you first see the weird interconnected spheres that represent magic to Steve Ditko, <laughs> the glory of that, like, wow, they are going full Doctor Strange. I would have liked to have seen more of that um, here and there, like, throughout his training and whatnot, to keep the really trippy stuff kind of as a thread throughout the movie. Just his, his hand filled with hands. Man, he would whip true. that out during the battle. What the hell is wrong with you? Ooh, my hands are everywhere. God, I mean, just the visuals just making up such an... Uh, like, there's a great scene of Strange in astral form fighting off someone who's attacking him in their astral form as he's being surgically operated on. Like, there's so many cool ideas for scenes that play out just on their own. Separate, like, they could be their own mini-films in a weird way. Oh, there's there's so much inventiveness with the film, things we've never seen before, particularly from Marvel movies, which, you know, of course, has been accused of being fairly standard in a lot of in a lot of sequences. And maybe not all of them work in Strange necessarily, but who cares? It's just inventive. Like, like this is definitely the prettiest Marvel movie of them all. Oh, it's gorgeous. The cinematography is just eye popping. Uh, there's been a a lot of criticism in recent years, that the Marvel movies all visually look identical. I think, like, Doctor Strange very thoroughly puts that idea to bed. Because this does not look like a standard Marvel movie at all. No, it, it doesn't look shot like one. It doesn't look like one, doesn't sound like one. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't even really, like, even the way it flows is not necessarily like a Marvel movie. Like, it has this otherworldly quality to it just as on celluloid like there's something about just seeing him in the mountain temple just reading reading these books and and going and seeing all these other people train and it's so not the way that you would see like the monastery and batman begins or or just a hilltop like it's so different because he walks into the main entrance and there's that awesome scene where he mistakes an Asian man with a goatee to be the Ancient One. Was that Mad Dog? I don't know. I haven't looked it up. I'm pretty sure it looked like Mad Dog to me, but it's I couldn't tell with the beard. The Handless Man. <laughs> I want to know what his story is. And the, the place looks like a day spa. It looks like something that you would see out of a, like, a traditional like tacky like scam that strange thinks it is because it's just this this place where people gather around and sit at tables and and read books and drink tea 
And it's just, it's so cool to see so many different, like, I was impressed with the set design in this movie, even. What I liked about the costume design is it's very, very Doctor Strange. Yes. But feels exactly like it belongs in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is impressive because of how different the aesthetic of Doctor Strange comics are. Well, they take those costumes and they take those visuals and make them just enough like real clothing to work, but just insane enough to stand out. Like, there's a balance there that's achieved that I've never seen in any other Marvel movie. Because, you know, with, with Iron Man, he's usually in an armor, and that's usually done practically, or it's done CGI, or a combination of the two. With Captain America, he's wearing this other kind, it's a military uniform type thing. Even when he has a, like, Winter Soldier, Doctor Strange just is wearing, like, essentially Jedi robes, but done so much cooler. I'm so impressed that they managed to make that dress that Doctor Strange wears <laughs> look amazing. And the cape looking the way it does and still being the cape. It's like, hard to pull impressive. off a good cape. It's hard to pull off the Doctor Strange cape. Like, screw capes. It's just that's the most troublesome cape that you could ever do in a superhero movie. Well, those collars always look stupid. Always. Except in Doctor Strange where it looks – it's not stupid. It looks awesome. And I don't know how they managed that. And they finally managed to make a CGI cape work 30 years after Spawn. <laughs> Same cape. <laughs> it just got bored. <laughs> I would love for a reveal in, like, the sequel or even Avengers Infinity War that the Cloak of Levitation had his origins in Necrogoo. Why do you keep just writing Wanda on the walls? But Simmons went to <laughs> the Ancient One for Enlightenment. <laughs> Yes, I will shave your head. Speaking of, so do you think that was makeup or that Tilda Swinton just has crescent moon scars all over her bald head? Pretty sure she just has those. Pretty sure she just has those. It's Tilda Swinton. I believe it. So can we just talk about the cast in general? Because one of the great things about the Marvel movies is that usually they generally always tend to have a good cast, but this cast is, like, a cut above in terms of just the amount of prestige they got. Because you have, you have Benedict Cumberbatch, of course, but you also have Tilda Swinton. You have Maz Mikkelsen. You have Chip... Uh, I, I cannot for the life of me pronounce his name. Mordo. Chewie. Chewie. Uh, you have him... <laughs> That's racist. <laughs> We're just going to move along. We're just going to move along. Um, you have just... I mean, even Rachel McAdams, who... I gotta admit, yeah, she's in a wasted role. I liked, I kind of liked Christine the first time I watched Doctor Strange. Thought it was fine. Rewatching today, that character, I don't understand what they were doing and then using Rachel McAdams. It was one the one place where it's it's like, okay, Marvel, I know you know there's going to be sequels to these movies. That that doesn't mean you can just go, yeah, we can do her later. I guess. <laughs> Give something. Like, it's, well, it's very awkward rewatching it. I will say, like, the one good thing about Christine that pleasantly surprised me is that there's the, no point do they get together. I did like, like how she, it's just, it's, that's done. Yeah, she's an ex, and she's there to be an ex, and she's just going to remain an ex. And I like that, because that's that's not where you see that story going. And particularly for the use of Rachel McAdams, I just imagine, oh, that's why they brought her in, is just so... They would have someone to swoon over whenever Doctor Strange kisses her or whatever, but they don't do that. 
Which Derrickson did very, very intentionally. It's just the downside is the other thing. The thing she is there for is just to react comedically to weird things, which is disappointing. It's like, I, I think she works fine as... In, in dramatic symbolic, Well, just in a symbolic role as being just what was left of Steven's normal life. Yeah. Because if you remove her from the story, it's just he's a dude alone and a house with a piano. <laughs> So you need you kind of need her there just to establish that he is in fact a person. Yeah, I, I just feel like there is, and you'd had plenty of time. To, there was just a little bit more to do with both Christine and using her to kind of flesh out Stephen's character more, both on the before side and then the after side, especially the after side, because because the way they're reintroduced to Christine is kind of just out of nowhere in the movie. It makes perfect sense, but it's. Just kind of out of nowhere, he just gets stabbed and immediately goes to Christine, and then has an action scene. But she's only really just there for that middle portion and then the end portion. So you don't really get this. I feel like there should have been a couple more dramatic beats that would have been interesting in there with between the two of them. But that's just me. I actually think that if she would have been better served as more dramatic beats in the beginning, because one of the things I felt like didn't work in the first act, and I more or less loved the first act. For, like, even as quick as it went by, I still love that. Yeah. One of my things with her is that whole moment where Strange turns on her and turns her away and, like, starts yelling at her because, you know, he goes on this whole thing about how she pities him and is there to just clean up his wounds and all that stuff. It's like, I like the scene because it was well acted. I didn't think it was earned. It wasn't earned because I I hadn't gotten to know these characters yet. No, not particularly. Yeah, there needed to be a little bit more, though. Yeah, honestly, if I didn't know... Doctor Strange was supposed to be a dick, I wouldn't quite buy that scene completely. But, like, just going into the cast in general, like, I gotta admit, Benedict Cumberbatch, as great of a casting choice as that was, I was always leery of, because, especially when I saw the first trailers and I realized he was gonna have to use an American accent, why? Still such a missed opportunity. I don't know why they did that, because there's no reason in the comics for Strange to be an American dude. There's no reason for him to, like, not have a British accent whatsoever. And everybody knows Benedict Dumberbatch is British. Also, everybody loves his British accent. Also, it would have differentiated him further from Tony Stark, who's an American dude through and through, so it would have worked way better. But I gotta say, even with that said, Benedict Cumberbatch is the perfect Doctor Strange. Oh, he's fantastic. He manages to bring so much depth to a role that could have easily been so one-note and one-dimensional, which is a, one of my biggest problems with the Doctor Strange comics, is that if you write him the wrong way, he can just be a blank slate of a character. He can be just a piece of wood who can do magic tricks. He's it's there a magical be, Wikipedia article. Pretty much. He's there to be stern and say magic stuff, and that's about it. And occasionally call on his servant. We don't talk about that. Speaking of which, the version of Wong, played by Benedict Wong. Can Wong get a Asian spinoff? Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> Can just, Wong get a spinoff, please, though? Yeah, the fact that they made this dude who is traditionally just, he's a helper or he's an Alfred. He's, he's there to give him tea or he's there to patch him up. Be a racist stereotype. This version is not only a warrior, he's a warrior librarian. And who he has is no time? Yes, <laughs> this white bullshit. That's the thing you and I talked about, James. Is that Wong's sole purpose is to call out Doctor Strange for being white. 
and that's so cool because it's it works. That's and right. to reinforce the fact that Doctor Strange is not funny. I know his I most did, essential characteristic. <laughs> I did like the his, his, the way they wrote him trying to be funny was exactly how a dick trying to be funny actually acts. Yes. Which was really well done. It's like, I like that none of Doctor Strange's jokes land at all because Doctor Strange isn't funny. So he just gives it up and becomes stern Doctor Strange. <laughs> and Wong is there to not only do that, but he has one of the best musically tinted scenes I've ever seen in a movie. One of the best punchlines I've ever seen to a Marvel movie, which is, Wong loves him some Beyonce. <laughs> I like that he had earbuds. Well, they have Wi-Fi. Are you as fascinated by that concept as I am? Because I just like the idea of the Ancient One having to talk to AT&T sometimes. <laughs> I do want to know who pays for it. Mordo. He is a baron. Also, this has nothing to do with... Uh, I was hoping for a dramatic reveal of him being a baron, by the way. Um, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but this is the staff of the Living Tribunal. <laughs> The greatest line ever uttered. I laughed my ass off in the theater. Just think, at one point, Benedict Cumberbatch will speak with those who serve the one who serves above in shadow. By the hoary hosts of Hogoth. I am so very excited for... The, the problems I have with the movie aside, I'm so excited for Doctor Strange 2 just because it can hit the ground running with magic shit. I know. And that goes into something that was a pleasant surprise, which is their portrayal of Doctor Strange as a sorcerer. Is I love how they subvert the the Ant-Man trope. I'm going to go ahead and call it a trope, despite the fact that the movie came out last year. <laughs> but uh, just the idea, the expected thing of, oh, Strange is going to be really bad at magic, and it's going to take him until the end of the movie to start to become a sorcerer. It's like, no, Strange is an amazing sorcerer and is the greatest student the Ancient One has ever had. Like, they actually do a good job of, like, easing you into the idea that, oh, this this really isn't a fish-out-of-water story. Doctor Strange was born to be Doctor Strange. This is his calling. Yeah. It's something that he was just never on the path for until his path was taken away from him. It's, it's just, it's always been there. It, it would be like if, like, Bruce Wayne had always meant to be, like, this great martial artist and detective and never had to train for it. He just found it whenever he started training, which would be the ultimate white man, rich dude move. And yet Doctor Strange, like, whenever he does it, it's actually, like, it fits because the thing that they're trying to do with it is so interesting in the way that she the angel one is looking for someone to become the new sorcerer supreme but she's not actively looking in the sense that she's kept her eye on strange for all these years and has looked at like everything he's ever done no he just showed up on her doorstep and, she, and she's like wait a minute you're the you're the one because she has him go through all these like training like rituals and stuff and doesn't expect him to come out on the other side but when he does that's when she starts realizing, I've been searching for you for this long. I like the implication that occasionally the Ancient One just murders people on Everest, and Mordo is really sad about this. M Mordo was not happy. 
Oh, Tilda, not another one. <laughs> so can we talk for a moment about how fucking amazing Tilda Swinton as the Ancient One is? Oh, incredible. The most badass character in the Marvel <laughs> Universe. Bum, 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 bum. It's actually her theme. Tilda Swinton does such interesting things as the Ancient One, just from facial expressions to her cadence when she's speaking, it's so different than anything I had seen her done previously. I don't understand how you pull off being otherworldly and chatty and personable at the same time. It was such a different take on on the Ancient One. It's like you believe she's thousands of years old, but looks the way she does. And it's all in just the way she... It's like she has this otherworldly knowledge. It's like she has like the knowledge of someone who's seen a thousand battles, and that's all conveyed in, like, a body stance or posture, and it, that's masterful. Like, that's that's the mark of someone who not only knows how to act, knows how to freaking act anything. She could probably pull that kind of performance off in a Sesame Street role. And that's, that's what made her dying so sad. It's like, no, I just want more of the Ancient One in these movies. Yes, leave her here forever. I have her be Doctor Strange. <laughs> she grows the mustache. A great death scene, though. Oh, yeah. That, I, 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 love, I love the fact that they managed, because of the nature of the material, they managed to pull off a death scene where nobody's, like, panting and choking and, like, being like, I, I, I have to tell you this one last thing. Like, you know, every mentor figure that's been in the MCU so far. That would be hilarious if she was doing that in the astral plane. Get me to a doctor! And then she just puts her finger on Sting on uh, Strange's chest and then fades away. <laughs> <laughs> While saying that her family is dead. All the things. But I love the fact that they got to have one final, just peaceful, tranquil chat. Which again looking, is the Doctor Strange thing to do. <laughs> While looking at the skyline of New York, which is just, that scene is beautiful. And just that it's them, but they're not quite there. And it's just a really cool shot of New York. And I love how they were somehow able to wring pathos out of the Ancient One. That character is usually just there. Yeah, well, let's face it, more of a stereotype than even Wong. Yeah, I was fascinating reading earlier Derrickson's uh, reasoning for the casting of the Ancient One as White, which I never really looked into before. Because I'd always assumed he just wanted Tilda but uh. He basically said he ran down the entire list. Like, if I make him a comic book ancient one, that's kind of a racist stereotype because he's just the old Chinese man teaching the white man how to be a Chinese man. But it's better because he's white. And then if I make him, if I make the ancient one an old Asian lady, then, oh, it's the dragon lady trope. Then if I make her a young Asian lady, Oh, then it's an anime thing. He ultimately decided there was no way he could do anything that wasn't going to be offensive in some way, so he just went with Tilda Swinton. At least still made her Celtic, which was a good way to go. She's technically a Highlander. And what technically a Highlander. What I love about Tilda Swinton's casting, what I loved about it from day one, because for me, that was one of those no-brainers where it's like, that's genius. I would have never thought of that. Is that the Ancient One as a character, is predicated on the fact that the Ancient One can just appear as any form that the Ancient One wishes at any point. That's always been the thing about the Ancient One, is that he can, he, she, it, whatever, 
can appear as anything. And making it Tilda Swinton and having the advantage of having Tilda Swinton in your movie because of the nature of that character is a genius move, just by itself. And I, sh- I should say, Derrickson still totally cops to the fact that, yeah, it's kind of bullshit that I whitewashed that character, but that's I still believe that that's better than having a racist character in this movie. It was a no-win scenario, unfortunately. I still maybe believe that they did overthink it a bit, but... I mean, you can't go wrong with Tilda Swinton, and ultimately, Wong is probably a better representation than the Ancient One, unfortunately. Just because, even though Ancient One is all-powerful, it still comes down to, you white man, you are going to do a better job than me because you're white. And that's just honestly worse than just Wong not taking any of Strange's shit. Yeah, again, that was ultimately Derrickson's thing, it's just... I didn't want him to take Sorcerer Supreme from an Asian person. Yeah. I wanted to just take it from another white person so nothing was being stolen. It was a better way to go. It sucks that we're, we are we have to say that, because that stereotype shouldn't exist in the first place, but, you know. That's a, well, that's often a very tricky place you find yourself in with adapting a lot of material from that time period, especially, like, in the fantasy realm is you get so much stuff that where there's just there's no right way to do something. I mean, look at the Red Martians and Princess of Mars. <laughs> so we're, look, we're just going to cast Lynn Collins and call it even. <laughs> we're not even opening up this can of worms here. And Syrian Hines. <laughs> but uh, uh, before we, uh, we get too close and wrap things up, can we just talk for a moment about the fact that this movie has, for my money, the most beautiful end scene of any superhero movie. Just Doctor Strange putting on his broken watch and staring at his hands in his sanctum. I'm glad you brought this up, because I wanted to bring up that I love how screwed up Strange's hands still are at the end of the movie. That w- I was not expecting that. Even the comics have never really thought to say... What if Strange just never fixed his hands? No, if he just never used the magic for that. He could, but he just shows us no. And just the fucking beautiful symbolism of him just putting on his broken watch. Yeah. That broken thing from his old broken life that he's going to keep with him as a reminder of the man he used to be. So he'll never be that man again. It's beautiful. I love that last shot. I love how much, even in the beginning of the movie, how much emphasis is put on his watch collection. (laughs) The most white man thing in the world. (laughs) But I I just, even beyond that, like, I I just love how the fact that there's a mainstream Marvel movie in existence in this day and age that ends on a quiet note. I loved that so much. Like, it took me by surprise the first time, because I was like, wait, when it faded to black, like, did, is there more? Because I'm so expected on, like, oh, it's going to be like the Captain America Civil War origin where there's just this triumphant scene of Steve Rogers emerging from the dark to free the other Avengers. Or it's going to be like uh, friggin' Iron Man, the, the like the first Iron Man. It's, it's going to have him at, like, he's going to do something really, like, over the top and bombastic or something. But no, it just honestly kind of brings him to a darker, more serious place than he was in the beginning. But it's not on a downer note. No, it's it's more of a stern note, which I think, you know, going forward is a good way to play Strange. Just more jokey Strange. That was kind of 
more flippant asshole strange. Now he he actually has a job to do that's real now. So he needs to be a little bit more stern and have it together. He can't be like having like iPod roulette whenever he's doing a neurosurgeon operation or something like that. He he has to actually, you know, focus. I just love how they emphasize his isolation there. Yeah. Just Doctor Strange alone in his sanctum sanctorum. And also, can, can we just thank every movie god in the world that the movie did not end with Wong deciding to become Doctor Strange's servant? <laughs> thank God. Though he is there with Strange, but I like to think they're lovers now. <laughs> well, no, it's it's made very clear that Wong mans the fort at the other temple. Yeah, Hong Kong. He, he protects, like, the Eye of Agamotto, which, by the way, best use of an Infinity Stone yet. I love how that's just a small take-it-or-leave-it thing, and they don't draw attention to it. Yeah, it's like the first time that's not bullshit. And even if you don't know what any of that means, just in the context of the movie, that's just a nice point. Yeah. It's like, oh, Strange still doesn't know what the Eye of Agamotto is. He needs to learn from Wong. Yeah, I like how he's not infallible at the end. He's just kind of fell into that accidentally. Like, even the Cloak of Levitation, like, he doesn't completely understand it, but he still uses it because it's useful. Like, he's very practical in the way that he deals with, like, he doesn't pull out a scepter or anything during the movie that he doesn't know how to control, but needs to use because the story depends on it. Like, he just kind of does what he needs to do and only goes as far as he understands. And then the rest like, he'll, he'll learn. I do like how there is a scene like that during the first uh, <laughs> fight with Mads. And he's like, oh, I don't know how to do this. I'll throw it at him. Mads is so put off that he has no idea how to use what he's holding. No, not, to, not to completely just defecate all over Casilius because... Mads Mikkelsen, for the screen time that he does have, is delightful. Oh, he's sassy Mads. Oh, yeah. And that scene of him, like, explaining what the Ancient One has actually been doing and just the hatred slash just legitimacy in his voice, because he wants Strange to pay attention. He wants to tell him the truth. He doesn't want to, like, say, oh, I, this evil thing that I'm doing is for an evil thing and an evil purpose. I'm going to manipulate you. He's actually telling him the truth the entire time, and he's vilified. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and say it. Kaiselius was right. He was. Let's get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> With the eyes underneath it. Kaiselius was just integrated poorly into the movie. And not poorly in that he didn't belong there. He did. Like, that actually played into the plot very well and went along with everybody's arc. And Oh, yeah. He's a heavy fixture. Oh, yeah. And Kaiselius has a very interesting villain plot. The problem is the movie only treats Caecilius as important when it's time to deal with the villain. Well, it's a plot device. Yeah, it's like the door opens up and Caecilius is there, and then Doctor Strange is now in a superhero versus supervillain plot all of a sudden. And it's very jarring, and even... It's like what Caecilius feels, his backstory, and why he's doing what he's doing, is told in that training scene with Mordo... Well, you're not really paying attention to what's being said. There's no... You could miss that information because it's barely there because it's a scene of strange training. So that's kind of more important than just what's being stated. And it's mistakes like that that kind of downplay Casilius too much in the movie. It's like you could have an actual scene of Mordo and Strange somewhere. He's telling this information. Maybe we're cutting to 
Kaecilius and he's doing something and we're connecting the dots and we're connecting what Mordo's saying to a face. Instead of just a lot of information that's kind of info dumped out there, unfortunately. Still, though, Mads Mikkelsen better off in this movie than he was in Thor The Dark World as because he was nearly cast. As oh, freaking oh, God, I forgot about that. Could you imagine? That would be unforgivable. Yeah, Kaecilius is an actual villain, so... Malekith the Accursed. That thing that, thankfully, he got cast as Hannibal Lecter and couldn't do. Thank God. Before we wrap things up, I think we have to talk about one of the breakaway stars of this movie. <laughs> the thing that, uh, walking out and in the days that followed since I've seen it, has been like the most iconic thing about this film, and that is Michael Giacchino giving one of the best superhero scores in the past 10 years. Guys, Strange has a theme. Bum, 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 bum. So goddamn cool sounding. I have listened to that score over and over again this week. And that is maybe the best use of integrating a theme throughout an entire score I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Because in over half the tracks, I believe, the strange theme plays at some point, subtly. Like, the entire score to that movie plays like one long Doctor Strange medley. (laughs) And at the end of the movie, there's a trippy 70s movie variant of it. Is brilliant. Which I found out is only in there because they had a gap in the end credits music at the last minute because they could not get the rights to Are You Experienced? So really? Giacchino, yep, Giacchino pulled that out of his ass just to play in the mid-credits. That's... I'm glad that happens. Is that, uh, that works out much better. But I would have preferred them to use that as the cl- closing music rather than what they went with, although that's... Uh, the music they went with is still very beautiful. Yeah. I, I have been... I, we've talked about Giacchino on this show before when talking about Super 8. He is maybe the best new composer working in movies today. He's the new John Williams. Oh, yeah. He's the best composer who hasn't been in films for 30 years. Yeah. I, I am so happy he's doing Spider-Man. Oh, I am... Yeah. Waiting with bated breath to hear that score. It's a lot has been said recently of, of uh, the quality of the Marvel movie scores, which I, for the most part, concede. Not just in their diversity, but in their use in the movies themselves. At no point is the score in this movie ever obnoxious. At no point is it just some background music to keep the tempo of the scene. Yeah. It manages to ride that fine line where you always know it's there, but it's never being bombastic. And every time there's a dramatic sting, like in, you know, the full Cloak of Levitation reveal, it always feels earned. You you feel the music, and it's there with you, and it's the character of the movie playing the music. As all great scores are, particularly of the old superhero variety, where there was that main theme. And it's been a while since we've really gotten that in a movie. Yeah, as, like I said in the Super 8 episode, Giacchino is a genius whenever it comes to creating a score that evokes 
the feeling you would have if you were in this particular situation that you're watching. And for Doctor Strange, Giacchino creates the feeling of wonder and adventure that, like, I have not heard in a really long time. Yeah. I I may flat out say this is the best Marvel score. I think it might be. I have some personal favorites that I put above it, but this is definitely one of the best. It's one of the top or upper tier. It's definitely, like, down to that and maybe, like, the First Avenger or um, Winter Soldier score. Winter Soldier. I I even have a great affection for the Iron Man score, but this is, like... First Iron Man movie score is actually pretty goddamn good. Yeah. And then, of course, they replaced him. Yeah, I can't wait to see them replace Michael Giacchino. <laughs> That's going to be amusing. God, I hope Scott Derrickson is allowed to come back to direct Doctor Strange, too. I hope they don't recast Baron Mordo at the last minute. I love you, Marvel, but you, you worry, have some weird practices. You... you have some weird practices. We all have to sit with bated breath when it comes to sequels to these things. That said, though, this movie made more money than God, despite the fact that nobody expected Doctor Strange to be, like, a huge moneymaker. Maybe, like, a modest moneymaker, but not to the level that it was, so... We're at least getting a sequel. Yeah, I can't wait to write to read the news that Captain Marvel has been pushed back to make room for Doctor Strange. <laughs> God damn it! You joke, James. You... That, was, that wasn't even a joke, dude. I know. I'm, I'm kind of expecting that to happen. Yeah, yeah. And after Doctor Strange was revealed as the reason Rhodey is crippled, so why don't you just fuck up the whole Marvel Universe, Strange? Yeah, why'd you have to go back in time, Strange? Sorry, I got my universes crossed. There's so many dicks in comic books. And I don't mean just because of the spandex, but mostly because of the spandex. And there's a lot of male characters. There's too many male characters is what I'm getting at. (laughs) Baron Mordo walks out. Too many penises. (laughs) And then then Benjamin Bratt falls to the ground. (laughs) Next summer, (laughs) A-Force. And I've been Mike. I've been MB. And I've been James. Mike, it seems you forgot your sling ring. And like that, he's gone. So how amazing was it hearing Mads Mikkelsen say, it appears that you have lost your sling ring. He thought that was some kind of rap. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. Mr. Johnson. Have you heard about those people who don't know about our podcast? Yes, sir. I've heard of them. Do you think anyone who doesn't know about our Southern-themed podcast should go to jail? No, sir. Do you think anyone who has heard about it but hasn't listened to our podcast should go to jail? No, sir, no. Do you think anyone who refuses to listen to our Southern-themed podcast should go to jail? No, sir, not really, no. Then what should happen? What would be a fair sentence? Do they deserve to die, Mr. Johnson? Do they deserve to die? Yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell.
Matt Johnson was found innocent of all charges and resumed hosting his monthly podcast, Below the Bible Belt. There are a lot of issues that plague the comic book community at large that are really never kind of addressed. I think what the three of us really wanted to do was do a show where we explore all of that. And by the very hand of Odin himself, we now have <laughs> the seed of this podcast. Marvel's Odin. Does DC have an Odin? I say must. I don't, th- I don't think it. so. Let's go with, like, image Odin. Look, look, DC has Hercules, so he has to have something. Who doesn't have Hercules? Spawn. He has Angela, who's, like, Lady Hercules. She is, she is kind of Hercules-like. Can we still legally say Spawn has Angela? Have I just gotten us in trouble? Well, now that she's Asgardian, I think it's it's fair play, so... Hey, she's not technically Asgardian. Yeah, but she's Asgard's assassin. And she has, like, a weird new haircut. Have you seen Angela's new redesign? Look, we can get all into the pathos of Angela on another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. <laughs>